China is going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. The next person who has the sheer nerve, the sheer entitled caucasity to say all lives matter, I'm a stab off to people that are pro-life. I hate you. So immigration is great in terms of bringing entrepreneurs in. Immigrants tend to be very entrepreneurial, more entrepreneurial than native-born. Um, young workers, uh, young immigrants will help us in terms of people getting older. The road is dark, the way is lost, my eyes they strain to see. I struggle forth to find a friend to light the way for me. Oh, brothers, can you hear my voice or am I all alone? If there's no fire to guide my way, then I will start my own. Protect the West. All right. So welcome once again, episode number two of Protect the West. And here we are. We are recording um, on the 23rd of January, this one, as we have a new president of the United States, uh, President President Joe Biden. It's still... Very, very difficult to say. But as of the last two days, he's been on a spree of executive orders. As of the time of recording, he has signed 21 executive orders. And that is why we're here to look at what we know and to speculate upon what we think may be coming. Uh, I'm Jade Maxena. With me right here is Jean-Claude Escalante. Escalante. Hey, Jade Mark. Good night. Good night to the viewers. Thanks for listening. Thanks for taking the time. And you're right, we have a new president of the United States, it's Joe Biden. Uh, it's what this is the third, fourth day into his presidency. And you know, I'll be honest, Jim, I, mm-hmm. I forgot I forgot about Trump. It's, it's like Trump wasn't even there because I mean, when you reverse pretty much 17 orders so far, you kind of, yeah, you kind of erase the last man legacy who was there, and um, it's back to the same old, same old Democrats, but. We'll touch more on that later. Well, uh, as Escalante hinted, 17 executive orders were written and signed on the first day. Four more in the 24 hours preceding, uh, preceding that. So we're looking at 21 executive orders. But oh, we're not going to look okay. Yeah, he, he's probably signing more right now as we speak. So we're not going to look at all 21 because... Most of the executive orders signed were meritoriums or memorandums, rather, and declarations that are part of something that would come later, something bigger. Mm -hmm. So we're going to look at here is I have a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve orders that he signed that are in and out things that we know are there and we can discuss 
at full rather than a couple orders that say around in his new COVID-19 policy, his new COVID plan where he assigned two orders regarding that plan today. Uh, and those orders are part of a bigger circle. So let's talk about that when that time comes. But we have a lot to deal with in terms of what we so, know. So he, has, he has a COVID plan because earlier today he was saying there's nothing we could do about COVID. He well, COVID. he... He doesn't have a COVID plan. He has a social welfare plan. I will get to that. Um, so I have the list there. Um, some of them you'll be extremely interested to talk about. Some I will be extremely interested in talking about. So let's get going. So I didn't put that in any particular order. But the first one at the top of the list here is a federal mandate for minimum wage to become $15 right. an hour. Yeah. So... You being the economist of the two, I expect you to take charge of that. I mean, you know, the, it's the age-old economic problem. It's, it's been around for decades upon decades now, and there's, there is a scientific link between the minimum wage and the employment rate. And every time minimum wage goes up, the unemployment rate goes up with it. You know, that, that link has been established ever since the Davis-Bacon Act of 1936. And I've written about this on Facebook before, when the Davis-Bacon Act was passed, now black unemployment in the United States had historically been higher than white employment throughout the 20th century, most of it. When the Davis-Bacon Act was passed in 1936, black unemployment went down. It was still higher than white unemployment. But the rate at which, the rate at which black unemployment went down was, much, was a much higher rate than the rate at which, uh, sorry, I should say the rate at which white unemployment, white unemployment went down was much higher than the rate at which black unemployment went down. So in other words, what I'm saying is that white unemployment basically decreased. More whites got jobs. Less blacks had jobs after the Davis-Bacon Act was passed, even though black unemployment rate was still lower. The next minimum wage law act that was passed was the, civil, was the uh, minimum wage provision of the Civil Rights Bill. That was 1964. And by 1975, for the first time in that whole century, it took 70, it took 75 years. By 1975, black unemployment fell. Black employment, sorry, fell lower than white employment. So white unemployment was actually lower than black unemployment for the first time in, in, the, uh, in the history of the United States for the 20th century. So there is that establishing, and this is all over the world. Uh, South Africa is the next example of it, where... The minimum, they passed minimum wage laws, and now here you have a situation in South Africa where blacks are unemployed at rates that were higher than apartheid years when you could not employ blacks. You know, the unemployment rate during apartheid for blacks was lower than it is today. Uh, the $15 minimum wage law, again, how I've, I've asked this before. How is Joe Biden going to pass a nationwide minimum wage law when each state has their own minimum wage law? You know, could this be Pollyanna? Maybe, but even if he succeeds in it, there is no doubt that it's going to have that effect on unemployment. Well, the, the path it'll most likely take is that that 15 wage executive order is a federal proposal. It'll go to each individual state. You would expect most Republican states to be uh, more, you know, let's say well, abrasive towards it, refuse yeah, it out and out. It's up to the federal government to say, well, you know, well, we'll raise it, but it, it's, it's up I to the individual states or whether or not to update the policy position. 
it's politics regardless of Democrat, Republican, it's politics. I expect pie in the sky from it. Yeah. And I mean, I think this on paper, we know that uh, the concept of some form of national, uh, or in this case, federal minimum wage is always a bad idea. And it's just that it is a bad idea coming at the worst possible time after you have locked down your country for almost a year and you have destroyed the small business and middle class business class. What you're doing now is after destroying all these businesses, the businesses that are surviving just barely breaking, even the businesses that are struggling to get by, getting out of shutdowns, getting out of the pandemic, what you're doing now is giving them this very, very, very stringent federal mandate that is not in your best interest. Because the reality is this. I mean, you and I spoke about this in terms of professional wrestling a couple of nights ago. Uh, in professional wrestling, there's called the independent circuit, where there are a number of no-name companies, no WWE, no other big names. There are a number of no-name companies that will hire a lot of younger guys is where if you're starting out somewhere that is not the big wwe you'll most likely be starting out in the independent circuit and there were positions for unions to posit but i think you forgot a, a major point there um when you work for the independent professional wrestling organizations you're lucky to get a hot dog and a handshake well, I was getting to that. Yeah, I was getting to that because yeah. usually the common culture, and not just culture, is, is, is economics at the end of the day for these proportions are to hire guys at next to nothing because at the end of the day, you're getting exposure at the lowest of levels. You're getting training, you're getting experience, all these things. So the, the union position would be to take that system and make it a mandate for these small businesses, these small independent promotions to pay upwards of 20 to 50 to sometimes $100 to these no-name guys, thinking that it'll help these no-name wrestlers who are now starting. What they don't realize is that what would most likely happen, and it has happened, it has happened in the industry of professional baseball in the 60s. It happened in the NFL once upon a time when it was... When it was um, AFC, uh, when it was the AFL competing with the NFL back in the 60s in the heydays of the Miami Dolphin, what would have happened is most likely these independent circuit performers, uh, promoters would just not hire these small guys, will look to see who they can hire with name brand, somebody who would not need the money in the first place, but would take the booking, and it would actually kill the opportunities for these smaller guys. Now, to relate a, a business perspective and in this minimum wage environment what you're doing by putting a minimum wage on already tired and taxed and uh, uh, and break even and in debt business owners is you're telling them that they need to pay an amount of money for their workers that they literally cannot afford and it's not to say it is not to say that businesses are paying people on the living wage. That's the other thing in the United States. Right. And that's another economic fallacy put forth by the left that 
businesses, particularly middle class and smaller businesses, are robbing labor, uh, 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 looking to pay under market share, uh, looking to pay you an amount of money that you can't live by. But the reality is when you look at the consumption culture of the, uh, let's say, millennial generation, because the majority of people who would be at this level working would be millennial and Gen Z. When you look at the consumption culture of Gen Z and the millennial generation, you would see that they are not being paid a underdying, uh, underliving wage. I was going to call it a dying wage, but that's nothing. They're not being paid underliving wage. They're not being paid uh, insufficient amount to live by, but rather their consumption choices are poor. Uh, you cannot be paid being paid enough by market share and taking your money and spending $200 a month on OnlyFans, spending $75 <laughs> a month on Poco Pops. You cannot be paying for Netflix Disney Plus, well, the WWE Network is next to nothing. Amazon Prime, <laughs> you can't be paying for all of these uh, luxuries because that is what they are at the end of the day. If you are in that income bracket, you can't be paying for every luxury in the world. You can't be buying Starbucks every day. You can't be wearing Uggs every day. You can't be looking at the designer clothing every day. You cannot have 20 different brands, uh, pieces of clothing from Supreme and say you are not being paid a living wage. It is up to the individual's consumption patterns. And I know I'm going a bit ever so slightly off trail, but it goes back to this big fallacy of we need minimum wage to fix this big problem of living wage being paid when there is no problem of living wage being paid. But Jim, to add to the whole fallacy, um, what people don't realize is that what the United States call, calls the, the lower class, you know, in, in Latin American countries, that's the middle class, maybe even the upper middle class. You know, you, you always hear about these stories about this is a single mother and uh, she has to raise these children and she's living on, she's living on a wage, the minimum wage and it's not a livable wage. And what they don't tell you about the, live, the minimum wage and people who live on minimum wage. Single mothers who try to live on minimum wage, they are an anomaly. The majority of minimum wage earners are people who call it students, people who live with parents. They don't have to pay their own rent. They don't have to pay their own mortgage. The majority of minimum wage earners have you know a roof being provided for them or at least they're paying towards it. But the fact is there are very few people living on minimum wage who are trying to live as if they're living on a much higher salary. and But but all the media will show you is, here's this single mother, here's this struggling person. But these people are exceptions to the rule. They're not the rule. There have been numerous studies to sh that have shown as well that the majority of Americans at some point in their life, they, I believe this study was done by Michigan. It was a time series study. So they took people from 20 years old and then they checked them back 20 years old when they were uh, 20 years later when they were 40. And they realized that these people who were minimum wage, minimum wage earners at 20 were now in the top 20% of, of households in the United States. So money comes with age and experience. Now, another thing I, I forgot to talk about in addition to the unemployment rate, what happens with minimum wage, and this is what studies have shown. Whenever there's a minimum wage increase, the unemployment for African-American goes down. It also goes down for you know the more low-skilled and uneducated Americans, but African-Americans... It is what it is. They fall into this category because they have a 50% high school dropout rate in some states. So the uneducated, the lowly laborer classes, 
they lose jobs to illegal immigrants who they can who companies can pay under the table. If I why would I if I'm legally mandated mandated to pay someone fifteen dollars an hour, why would I do that when I can get somebody who's just as willing to do it for nine dollars? And this is the thing about the minimum wage argument that people don't don't understand as well. Fifteen dollars to me as an American citizen might seem like nothing because I want to live the lavish American life. Nine dollars to the Mexican immigrant trying to make a life for himself who came from dire poverty in Mexico, that's a lot of money. You know, the concept of value, it varies from person to person. And, and when they're talking about, oh, the minimum wage is not a livable wage, whose definition of livable are we really using? Yeah, and you know, I'm glad that you bring up the comparisons to the immigration uh, uh, situation, the immigrant labor conundrum, and we'll get to those. But moving on from the $15 minimum wage, another order that was signed uh, yesterday or the day before, because we're recording on the 23rd, was an order of food aid for children who rely on school feeding programs, who, of course, uh, schools being online, they would not be able to accept that, um, access uh, the school feeding program per regular. So we are unsure as logistically how this food aid order would roll out. But to me, what this strikes me as is one of those instances of the government finding a solution to the to a problem they created in the first place. Usual. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, they create mm-hmm. the problem, and if they create the problem. They present themselves as the, as the solution, and you're supposed to clap them for solving the problem that they created. When I think if you made the mess, you should clean it up. Correct, because, you know, on paper, people who are not, uh, let's say, critically thinking will look at this and be like, okay, well, this is a great initiative. And on paper, it is a great initiative. But then you remember, well, the reason why children are home and are not accessing this school feeding program is because of lockdowns for a less than 1% lethality virus. Send the children back out to school. Just do that. I, I know I might sound cutthroat to some of people, some of our listeners, but the reality is, is it's been almost a year. Send the children back out to school. It does not make sense that you create an entire federal program that will cost billions of dollars but, in logistics and support to to reach out to the students throughout the country in a way that is will never be as efficient as right. bringing them back to school. And this is the thing, already as it is, 60% of the federal budget is in mandatory repayments, Social Security, Medicaid, uh, the food stamp program. How much more do you want to add to that federal budget to bloat it up even more? At what point, so that the American people will be paying taxes in mandatory payments rather than having some of that tax money spent back on them? I, you know, I, um, I've, I've read criticisms of Donald Trump um, well, he spent just as much as, as the Democrats. And what people don't understand is that America's debt, a lot of it is mandatory payments. And when Joe Biden adds yet another mandatory payment, because anytime you add these programs, they, they stick around. They stick around for a while. How much more of the federal budget do you want to have just bloated with these mandatory payments that everyone else has to inherit for the next 100 years? Correct. I mean, uh, you're looking at, and I think probably, you know, not to go back into that presidency too much because we will do an episode on that because we just want to focus on the executive orders. But one of the biggest failures, I think, undoubtedly, arguably, the biggest failure of the Trump administration was expanding the federal debt 
from yeah. 19 trillion to 24 trillion in its four years yeah. time. It was a significant expansion, even more than Obama's first four years during, even more than Obama's second four years, rather, yeah. not the first four. And, you know, you have this situation where you have an, you were, you had a president that said for eight years in speaking about Obama. And a big policy point and failure of Obama from both sides was the fact that he keep raising the debt ceiling over and over. Now, President Trump didn't focus on that as much because I, I feel like in, in interviews with Pauli Lewandowski, uh, conversations with Steve Bannon at Oxford University, you get the feeling that Trump knew it was stupid politically to make a promise on the debt ceiling. So yeah. you would notice that in his 2015 to 16 campaign and even his campaign now, there was almost no mentioning of national federal debt. Joe Biden is coming in at a time where those Obama era issues will be coming back to the forefront. Right. So the way Trump was not whole, the, probably the one thing ever Trump wasn't well, his feet wasn't unfairly held to the fire was the debt ceiling conversation. The one thing Trump kind of got away with, Biden won't. And what direction, uh, based off this executive orders and others, and we'll get to those, what direction in terms of policy, in terms of fiscal policy, uh, the Biden administration shows some kind of deference to is policies of expansive government spending, which would expand that federal debt, as you say, more mandatory payments. So it's going to be a big conversational point because I have a feeling that they'll bring that up as a conversational point in a critique because it's boring and it is not as sensational as who has an affair with who, who grabbed who in between the crutch, who with Russia and with Ukraine, and is going to bore the living hell of the Western world and the American public, and they will not hold it up as a massive failure of the Biden presidency as everything else that they held up against Trump. That's just my notion on that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the thing is, I mean, um, Joe, not Obama, sorry, Joe Biden has already stated that people are tired of waiting on monetary policy to kick in. We're going to kick in with fiscal policy. So he has already let you know that, yeah, he's going to raise taxes. And when he's going to raise taxes, he's going to increase spending. So he has let you know what he's going to do for the next four years. Well, yeah. Well, interesting times ahead, and we'll see how that line of things develop. But moving on, another executive order signed, and um, I know you will be taking the lead with this one, is a federal mandate of public schools throughout the country to allow transgender women, men, biological men, to compete in female high school sports with biological women. I mean, women, men fight for the right for women to vote, and then women took the right to vote, and then they voted for men to compete in their sports. I, 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 feminists, I really want to hear from the feminist movement, because I'm not hearing from them, because they had everything to say over the last four years. Donald Trump grabbed who, where, he paid who for what. Right, Brett Kavanaugh do what, and you can't hear from the feminist movement on this issue. This is a very serious issue here. 
here you have biological males. I don't care to play the semantics and the word games and do the mental twister. Okay, you have biological men who are stronger, faster, more agile, and they are going to compete against women in sports. This to me is the Trojan horse to destroy feminism. This is the Trojan horse to, dis to destroy everything that you know women's rights groups have been fighting for and have achieved over the past how many decades by now. Because what you're doing is that you're going to you're going to basically bring in the the, the so-called patriarchy that feminists feminists love to complain about. You're going to bring it in to their sports and let them dominate it. There is no way that a biological male is going to lose to a female. And this is not sexism or anything. It's not a matter of anything a man could do or a woman could do better. Can the elite sprinter outrun me? Can the elite female sprinter outrun me? Absolutely. I'm not, I don't train to run. She, she's going to have a faster time than me. Can the elite female boxer kick my ass? Yeah, probably. She, she would, right? But that's not the point. Can the elite female athlete outperform the elite male athlete? That's not going to happen. And I don't even think transgendered men need to be elite. They just need to be average male athletes. And they will outperform these women. And they're going to take over these. But I, this is just asinine. I can't believe anybody will sit down and defend this. this well, to, me, to me, put the economics aside. And let's just use common sense. Like if I'm just a common sense voter. If I'm going to vote for what makes sense, to me, I can't, I can't, this is nonsense. I can't support it. Well, we, we, we do have some data um, to support what you're saying, because when you look at the 400 meter track record uh, in the United States, uh, the peer research in 2016 took, and I'll have to find that and I'll send it to you to share to your legion on Facebook. Um, I see you building a little following there, by the way. Congratulations on that. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, um, the they took the national record for a woman's 400 meter sprint and they cross referenced it to the performances of young males at high school level throughout the right. country. And what they found is that there were over 300 young men training at semi professional level at high school level between the ages of 14 to 18. That's surpassed the professional woman's record for the 400-meter right. uh, sprint in the United States. World-class females. World-class. Olympic-level athletes. Getting beat by high school athletes. Yes. Okay. So, on your point of transgender men, men, biological men, I, I, I'll get to... Just now. Give me a moment. Let me make the point first before I say what I really want to say. On the say point of men... Say <laughs> Let me see this first. On the point of men competing in female sports, it is not even close. It will not even be close. Yes. It is going to yes. kill female sports. It is going to destroy the feminist movement and the push in sporting achievement. The reality is men are biologically not... I'm not going to say superior because it depends on what perspective you... You think, yeah, men are biologically extremely different from women and are much more conducive to athletic sport in the way it is constructed today. And it is counterintuitive to the feminist movement, to women who are not self identifying feminists, it's counterintuitive to them, girls who train their asses mm -hmm. off, 
day in, day out at semi-professionals striving to be to professional levels, to have to be coming from the top of their state to fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, slowing, 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 going down the ladder with each man that is added to that state's sports yeah. inclusion. But the reality is... Mm-hmm. No, go on, yeah, go on. Yeah, sorry. The, re- the reality is, this is, is bu- obviously part of a bigger conversation when it comes to transgenderism, uh, the trans community, or whatever they want to call themselves this week. The reality is we should not necessarily accept them in a way that we are accepting them. This has always been my view. We need to care for them. We need to show due deference to them. We need to love them because that is what my Bible taught me, to love. Hate the sin, love the sinner. The reality is these people, the community, are not a community of individuals who are thinking straight. A community whose suicide rate, when sampled anywhere between Western Europe and the United States, is anywhere between 31-35% to up to 51.38%. That is an alarming indicator. Gender dysphoria was considered a mental illness that should be treated via psychiatry for decades mm-hmm. until it was removed from the list in 2016 by the World Health Organization. Oh, was it the World Health? I thought it was the... WHO? I don't know who came first. I know both the SM people and WHO removed. I don't know who came first. I'll go with WHO because they're literally the global authority. So, we have a community of individuals who have statistically, in any tested form, has shown that there is cognitive, mental, uh, 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 psychological discrepancies from what we know as a properly functioning human being. We are not to go and create this fantasy land for them and Mm -hmm. make them supposedly included. We are to love them and we are to try to take care of them, but we need them to understand that there is an issue within their community. There is an issue within each and every one of them. Right. But the counter-argument to that, Jim, is that they're going to say, well, the suicide rate is so high because they don't feel included, they don't feel accepted by of society. And that is bogus. Because when you look at the, among the, uh, the LGBTQ, more specifically the homosexual community in Europe, such as um, Denmark and the Netherlands, where they've had gay rights, gay marriages have been legalized since the 90s, the 80s. The suicide rate from back then, it's no different today. It's the same. It has not decreased. Or if it has decreased, it hasn't been anything significant. So the idea that this will all go away if we let... I mean, come on, this is ridiculous to think about. That's, that, that, we, that the few, the very few transgender athletes in existence today that if we let them into women's sports, that this will somehow this will somehow have a wide-reaching impact on the entire transgender community. It's just absolutely ridiculous to think that because athletes feel included, by extension, just the average everyday transgendered person will feel uh, accepted and included. That's just ridiculous to think. And now the other thing about the whole idea about letting transgendered people play in sports, I am all for, if somebody's transgendered, if, 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 if someone's a biological male who thinks they're female, I'm all for that biological male who thinks he's a female playing in the men's division. I mean, as long as he can play his ass off, no problem. Right? And you're not stinking all the joints every weekend. But that's a different story. 
I cannot support the idea that we should take biological meals and put them in women's divisions. And this is another thing that this is going to kill women's sport. It is what it is. The WNBA, the Women's World Cup, the ratings, the ratings are low. They are very poor. Okay? No one watches women's sports the way they watch men play sports. Okay? The ratings aren't the same. The draws aren't the same. And I mean draws, the buy rates, uh, the attendance, the ticket sales, not the same. Can't compare it. I don't think any man in their right thinking mind. Now, I may contribute a few viewership numbers to women's beach volleyball, but I don't think any man in their right thinking mind wants to go watch women's beach volleyball, Joanna Man Edition. So what about the ratings for these sports when you finally include transgender people in it? What's it going to be like? What is the backlash going to be like? Because we have to remember, this is a bubble. I know people don't want to hear it, but the transgender movement is a bubble. You're talking 1%, 2%, maybe 4% total of the world's population. This is a bubble. How many people are going to are willing to part with hard-earned money to sit down and live in your bubble? And you what know, I, 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 I had to dig further into the statistics, right? Because... Uh, UCLA published a study in 2016 looking at the breakdowns of the suicide rate and they were trying to make the big argument, the sociological argument of matching the suicide rate to the treatment of the transgender community throughout the United States. Uh, and I have a, I have a, they, they have it highlighted here and it says that 9% of respondents being the transgender community who wanted but did not receive gender-affirming care reporting past year suicide attempts, 9% is still extremely high. 9%. Is unbelievably high. Nine percent represents three to four times more than the average heterosexual community, both male and female. Nine percent is a higher rate than females in the developing world. Get this: it's a higher rate for UN studies than females in the developing world who are denied access to healthcare while pregnant. Right. 9% is a higher suicide rate, is a higher uh, rate of suicide attempt than females, again, per UN study, who are in the developing world and are raped. It's higher. Attempts. Attempts are distinguished from thought. Right. When you ask about thought, women in the developing world who are subject to sexual abuse thoughts of suicide goes up to 54%. In the transgender community, thoughts of suicide in general, not from rape, not from abuse, not from anything, just general treatment, which may include all of those things, but it's supposed to be a lower number because it's not specifically targeted to a particular experience, is still 52%. <laughs> so, what we're looking at here and what the numbers are showing us here is a community of people who are broken. A community of people where whatever direction you want to pivot and create a little niche of statistic, whatever angle you want to take, the numbers are still extremely high, yeah. abnormally high. We're championing mental illness as progressivism. That's what we're doing. Correct. And, you know, it's very worrying because... Uh, uh, Look, look at the LGBTQ, 
the letter, the yeah, alphabet yeah, community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the alphabet community and you look at the intersectionality within the alphabet community between the queers, the gays, uh, the bisexuals and the transgenders. You're seeing that they, are, they, they, they on the outside, they want to look as one, but in reality, they have different flags, they have different subsets, they, 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 they war with each other, they... Um, you know, they have their rivalries. So it, it, it goes to show that they, we are not talking about people here who have a mindset towards tolerance. The reality is, for what's supposed to be the most collectivist-minded subsets of people in Western society, because that is what they're supposed to be, that's what they collect, that's, you know, that's, that's the, the mantra of the left, collectivism over individualism. They are very much not as tolerant as you would expect collectivists to be. So there are so many questions there where they themselves are either incapable of or refusing to answer, knowing very well, perhaps knowing very well, what the answer may be and what it may mean to their individual communities. I, so... I think I think this is going to be yet another experiment whereby we ignore the facts, we ignore the statistics, because somebody believes they can change the world with an idea, and this is going to be one of those other experiments where we are going to create more harm than the good intentions were ever promised. And mm -hmm. this, is, this is a catastrophe waiting to happen. Well, so speaking of catastrophes that are waiting to happen, so the other executive order on the list is a 12-month federal moratorium on evictions. Go ahead. Well, after, let's see, so after people are out of jobs, after inflation has risen... Yeah, people are no longer expected to collect. Okay, go on. <laughs> yeah, right? Mm -hmm. It yeah. gets worse. Mm -hmm. The dropping of student loan interest is 0%. Right. So we are possibly looking at the collapse of the entire banking sector. Now, this is something I mentioned on the Trinbago War a couple of times last year. So in September 2019, and this is a terrifying thought, but in September 2019, the repo rate spiked 5,000% overnight. They didn't know how. They still don't know how or what caused it. But at just the repo rate, what the Federal Reserve has been doing is Depending on which report, some people say 100 billion a week, some people say uh, 100 billion a month. We don't know, but we know that the Federal Reserve have been pump has been pumping billions of dollars into the economy to adjust the repo rate and and not fix what happened because they still don't know what caused it, but to bring some it's, form of stability. It's obvious. No, no. These, 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 they, but here's the kicker. Yeah. Here's the terrifying part. The truly terrifying part of that. The Federal Reserve is funding that money, pumping into the economy by sheep. 
<laughs> Sorry. <Right>. By creating <laughs> housing bonds. Right. It, 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 this, this... The exact is... thing yep. they did that led to the global yeah. financial crisis in 2008. Yeah. They are literally doing it again. Right, but this is the thing. I was going to say... This is how it happens. Something happened and the market reacted it. Okay? Maybe it was because of some nonsense policy from 2005, 2006. Who knows what caused it to go up to 5,000. 5, but the market responded to a government intervention. And the solution to that, according to the technocrats and the bureaucrats, is more government intervention. And as you rightfully pointed out, this is the global financial crisis all over again. This is the this is exactly how the housing market collapsed. Uh, how much ever what was a decade or over a little over a decade now? Mhm, mhm. And you know the the kicker the kicker oh, is one more, thing, one more thing. And the, mm-hmm. the, the 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 federal is the, the central bank trying to combat the the repo rate, uh, the increase in the, the rise of the repo rate, is exactly what also led to the Great Depression. Correct. Exactly. It's literally the same thing they did. The repo rates spiked mysteriously and they decided to address it by pumping inconceivable amounts of money funded by government bonds into the economy, which led to the collapse of the financial sector. So it's the Great Depression and the 2008 crisis all wrapped up in one on top top of your COVID-19 economic crisis. Yeah, you, you, you shut down your economy, you shut down 56% of the economy for almost the entirety of a year, while the Federal Reserve is doing the exact same thing that destroyed the global economy 10 years before. And this is the thing, this happened in September 2019. Why on earth would you close down the economy four months later? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know. But, you know, but, uh, but the kicker is, right? You know Biden is here to save the day. Yeah, well, but, I mean, he done kill the COVID. So, <laughs> you know, he'll save the economy, too. Um, <laughs> but the kicker with that situation from September 2019 is the fact that the big banks had the liquidation on them to fix that change. But they couldn't, as they have done many times before, because of Obama-era regulation. Obama-era Dodd-Frank regulation that stop the banks from emptying out their liquidated assets, their cash assets, into the market to bring stability to the repo rate. What Obama-era regulation did in that scenario was take the owners away from the bank, from the market, allowing the market to correct itself, and put the owners on the government, being the Federal Reserve, to do it in a quite disastrous way by shorting housing bonds. Well, not shorting bonds, by creating housing bonds. We are going to get 2008 all over again. Yeah. I just don't know when. Because ah, I am not Alan Greenspan. Ah, the then again, is... Alan Greenspan didn't know either. So, you know. <laughs> We're going to get 2008 all over again. But I don't know if you could remember what happened in 2010. Obama was taking credit for saving the economy. Well, maybe Biden might take credit in his second term when he's 86. Yes, and, he's going to be, and the, the media is not going to let anyone know, no, and the majority of the world is going to remain oblivious to the fact that the federal government, the Federal Reserve, once again caused this problem. 
And this I mean, is why this is why it keeps happening. It keeps happening because people don't know why it's happening in the first place. And they're being fed lies and they're being told they're being told propaganda and they're running with it. They're gonna say Joe Biden saved the economy. But all he did was buffer it until the next guy ten years from now come. Well, what people are, what is happening right now in the housing market? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, as you're right, fully point out. The, 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 the banks were not able to solve the problem because of an Obama-era policy. So Obama take credit for saving the economy in 2010, but by 2021, his by 2019, sorry, his policies caused the economy to end back up in the same mess. And that is the problem with over-restricted red tape. When you try to regulate every single thing in an economy, in a society, that is what will happen. It will always come back to bite you in the tail. You know, and what's happening in the housing market right now? Uh, is that house house prices are dropping, and people are attributing that to the fact of economic lockdown. They they're actually attributing it. Even uh, professionals on on the street, they they're saying that it's due to uh, somewhat depression that we're expect we're experiencing right now because of the lockdown. And as a result, naturally in depression times, you will you would you would see the opportunity to buy more homes and then you know if you have the money you hoard them until times go back up in a boom to sell them over at a profit so they're saying is that but the reality is it's not necessarily the economic lockdown is the fact that uh, well housing bonds are being given away billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars in housing bonds are being given away by the federal reserve quite easily because they have to because of the regulation they have to correct the market not the big banks the more terrifying thing, why this, when this hits the fan, it'll be more terrifying, is that the banks won't be responsible. There'll be no Merrill Lynch and Lima Brothers scapegoat. There won't be no Bank of America to blame. There'll be 100% the Federal Reserve, the Federal Re- Government, which means it'll be 100% the burden of the taxpayer. This will be a taxpayer-funded disaster unlike 2008 and unlike the great depression itself because the scapegoats in the great depression time was every single private industry they could have blamed rightfully so the scapegoats in 2008 were the big banks you went after the big banks rightfully so merrill lynch lemon brothers they were doing things uh with shorting the bonds and creating uh, the subprime loan system and all these things, creating fraudulent tranches, all these things, they were at fault. But this time, it's the Federal Reserve and just the Federal Reserves because of Obama-era policy stopping the big banks from atoning for their sins and actually yeah. getting involved and fixing it this time. When he made that decision, you know if he was wearing any to daddy? Oh, I don't know. I'm not too sure. He was probably <laughs> singing Amis in Grace. <laughs> No, so, I mean, mm-hmm. no, I know. It's just the reality is here you have a incoming collapse, and uh, here you have Joe Biden saying, "Don't build pipelines and don't do this and just costing jobs when people need jobs." Right. So the next executive order oh, okay, one is yeah. the canceling of the Keystone Pipeline. So yeah. continue. Uh, let's see. So, like most countries that want to develop, that want to progress, pipelines are built. But um, the environment, the environmentalists, they believe pipelines should not be built. 
what is their solution? They could never tell us besides things that cost even more money than the pipeline itself. And uh, when you look at the research and all the data on these solutions that cost three and four times the price of what they're trying to get rid of, there's no scientific, scientific evidence to prove that they work. So uh, we're going to save the environment at the cost of jobs, basically. Yeah, well, you know, pipelines are the most cost-effective, uh, efficient, and environmentally friendly way to transport uh, energy. Or oil, if, oil, uh, natural. them in native ground? Well, well, I mean, <laughs> I, so much. You know, you know, so many people that uh, were against the Keystone Pipeline, both north of the border and in the United States, and most of those people are the ones that will benefit from the pipeline if it gets going. If, if you know, there is. Uh, you but, know, you know the, I, I, the executive I, I, order was a declaration. It was not an actual is, order. So, you know, there is hope. This is what I have to say about the people who want to argue about the Native Americans. In December last year in Australia, the Chinese bought an island. Okay? Mm -hmm. Australians mm -hmm. are not allowed to go on that beach. Where is the complaints from the West? about the Australians that can't get access to their own land. About the you know, we have, we have to do an episode of China. Well, yeah. We, trying to beat me. down Australia because that's that a Joe whole Biden, other topic. Not that Joe Biden is president. We've been doing a lot of episodes on China. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we might but just create a next um, what podcast called Protect the West from China. <laughs> and just do that. Protect us from camps. Um, yeah. I look Muslim, you know. They faster take me than you, you know. <laughs> worry. These, these Native Americans that are complaining in Canada, a lot of them are unemployed. Not because they can't find jobs, but because they are they are taken care of by the state. That's something I don't know if a lot of people are aware of, but they're taken care of by the state. And they, they even in the United States, they are for, the tribes are afforded state. Uh, protection and all these things. So, right. Uh, I mean, listen. The, the reality is, and you know, you know what my background is. So, I have to give the projections. The reality is, the fossil fuel market, as we know it today, being based on or high low sulfur, uh, uh, crude oil, West Texas, since intermediate and Brent crude, it will dry up eventually. No pun intended. And the reality is, the next step forward in evolving that market for the global economy is to go to tar sands. The, con the country with by far the largest reserve of tar sands in the world, not Saudi Arabia, not Venezuela, not Iran, not even the United States, Canada. Canada, whether it be in 50 or 100 years, will be by far the oil hegemon of this planet because we will not move the sustainable energy any sufficient form like that. I mean, so the Keystone Pipeline represents an opportunity for the United States, who will be obviously under the Biden administration, even though say, even though one day he's saying he'll end fracking, the other day he's saying he won't end fracking, we don't know. But definitely some it depends, form It depends of, on which day he remembers what he had for breakfast. Well, I mean, I don't think any day he remembers what he has for breakfast. So, um, but 
there will be the rolling back of the shield production. United States within the next four years will decline when it comes to production and will no longer be the largest exporter and producer. I was going to ask if you think they will no longer be the largest producer. They, they, they will drop because uh, what I expect is a lot of outsourcing to happen now. What I right. expect is a lot of the um, energy industry to be on the work dump and take billions and billions and billions in government grants for renewable energy now. And as a result, they'll offset it by reducing their operations in oil and gas. Because let's not forget, uh, oil and gas operations are extremely risky. Uh, in Trinidad and Tobago, we, we got the news yesterday or today uh, of a field, a hole drilled by BHP. A hole on average takes one hole in a hope oil takes on average somewhere between 100 to 120 million US dollars to drill. It's extremely expensive process. So it'll be easier for the big boys, namely the Exxon Mobiles and the Royal Dutch Shells, to take grants, to take billions in federal money and posit it towards quote-unquote renewable energies that they know won't be, uh, be able to be expanded enough to be sustainable to a level. So they'll be, in that way, preserving both. They'll be creating a new revenue stream while preserving their main revenue stream, if you understand what I'm saying. By making right, the yeah. same, they'll be making the same amount of money and they'll be saving their main sale item, the, their main operations. So it's great for them. It's wonderful for them. They don't care about... Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, they don't care about Iran because those are state-owned companies, those are Aramco and an and Iranian oil development trust. They don't care about those. They care about their American interests because it's the place that they could get the most. They don't care about Venezuela either because it's state-owned PDVSA. They only care about the United States. And if they could get an opportunity to take billions and billions and billions and quite possibly trillions of dollars from the United States government to pursue a witch hunt, which is the renewable energy dream, while saving a lot of their product for more and more decades to come, they'll take it in a heart. The other thing, too, is I expect war. And with a military engagement, the price will raise. So that will, that will encourage them even more to create scarcity in the market, to, to spike the price as much as possible. So I expect the U.S. to be to to be lowered from the uh, the height of being number one. But that's just me. I just say you, sir. Me, no, not now. <laughs> so, Jim, Jim, every every budget that is bring some U.S. students on TV six to analyze the budget, you know, so. Yeah, some of my classmates, and, you know, some of them so retarded. You know, by the way, I, I counted. I counted so far. U.S. students zero. <laughs> Reality a hundred. Yeah, they're losing money. Uh, yeah, they, they get licks. They get licks. <laughs> Definitely get licks. I don't know. I don't know. We could we could do an episode about my experiences and you. I don't know if that'll be still. <laughs> oh, I don't know if that'll be marketable content, but no, I might uh, need it. We'll just be, you know what? It will just be an hour of us talking about what we just talked about for hour already anyway. So yeah, so we could do. We could but moving take, on, we just take, we could probably just take our voice news and just upload it as the episode. Yeah, no, no, no. We're not taking our voice news. Our voice news are problematic. <laughs> Um, yeah, very. Uh, okay, yeah. so moving on. Um, 
next one on the list is the re-entering of the parasitical. So Jesus Christ, this is my one. So, um, so this is the problem with the parasitical. This is why the COP21 agreement since the ratification in January 2017 has been a global failure. The reality is almost every, if not every single country that gave contributions, that gave um, commitments for the 2030 goals, gave commitments based on where they were already headed, particularly China and India. They gave commitments to peak at 2030 when it comes to their global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. However, all of the data suggests that those countries would have peaked by 2030 anyway. So the reality is, we have every major real contributor, uh, violator, if you want to call it that, to greenhouse gas emission in the global atmosphere, committing to something that they would have already be doing while the United States, while President Obama and the man who negotiated on their behalf in uh, John Kerry, and he's the climate envoy once again under, Bi uh, under Biden, oh, almost call him O'Biden, under Biden, um, <laughs> The U.S. negotiated very draconian and drastic terms. They set a 2030 target that will kill the American business class. And let me explain. What would happen is that it will require the United States to cut their industrial activity somewhere between 22 to 35%. What will happen most likely is that in Biden's time, we're projecting what will happen most likely is that all of the businesses that came back from China due to the tax cuts of Donald Trump in 2017 and his trade policies would go back to China once again, taking the millions of jobs with it. They will go back to a country that has no pressure to bring regulation on the environment because their climate commitment, according to the Paris Accords, is one that is not ambitious, but rather it is one that they will meet anyway, even if they take back on American businesses and people say, oh, well, you do your logic, fault there. No, they made the commitment while they had the American businesses there, the European businesses there. They factored all of that in. China knows what they're doing. The commitment was made in 2016 prior to even Trump becoming President Trump, he was sworn in in 2017. So that is exactly what's going to happen. So if the United States, very much what they're going to do, rejoins the Paris Agreement, retakes the same commitment, or even a commitment anywhere near that, it's going to spell the death of complete industries. Automotive industry, gone completely. Not like before, not like the hits. Not like reduce. They'll be gone completely. Shale oil industry will be reduced heavily, extremely low. Uh, natural gas industry destroyed completely. They'll have to start back buying from us. Not a good thing uh, for us either. We don't have enough. Um, uh, I, 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 meat manufacturing industries, uh, fabrication industries, steel industries, any form of significant manufacturing industries in mass production would be heavily reduced, if not completely killed, and then outsourced, which would lose, let's say, I don't know, about all 7 million of the jobs that came in 
under the Trump administration would leave and more because they will they will have to adhere to these draconian policies for about a decade. So, um, not good, not wise. You know, the thing is, in a world where public education was of a better quality and a higher standard, the majority of the Americans and the world would recognize that Donald Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement is one of the greatest policy decisions, foreign policy decisions, a president could ever make. Because not only did he bring back jobs and all of that because of it, but what he did was ensure that America no longer had to contribute billions of dollars to something that's that, that has nothing to do with them. Because, and I actually have a write-up on this. I, I, it's, it's interesting that you call me to decide to talk about this topic yeah, because I had a, written up something on Wednesday to go through some of Joe Biden's executive orders and the Paris Agreement was one of them. Mm-hmm. The United States pledged $3 billion, 3 billion euros. Fra- France pledged a billion. Within the first two years, France had committed already three quarters of that billion. The United States, mm-hmm. $2.3 billion. Basically, the Paris Agreement is yet another way of American taxpaying dollars to go everywhere else but the pockets of the American citizens. To go to the UN. To go to the UN, correct. It's one of the most brilliant moves he ever did. It was a bad agreement from the start. And I keep asking this question because it has to be asked because you have to start and think about it. If every individual country in the world plays their part in fighting climate change, is there a need for a collaborative effort that world leaders have to meet at a, a, a meeting some part of the world and, and agree to this? Can't we just sit down in our own isolated bubbles and do this? Why does everything require a big United Nations conference and pledging of billions of dollars that does not belong to these politicians? Well, you know, the bigger question is if climate change is such a global threat, the greatest threat to man's existence and human civilization, <laughs> why is no country and it actually, major countries that is, actually doing anything significant? But, but this is the thing. And you know, you look at these politicians, Joe Biden spent almost, was it a billion, was it two billion? I believe it was a billion on private jets to go from state to state, not from country to country, state to state. I mean, maybe he could have taken a car, but a 13-hour car, right? He might have fallen asleep. But the thing is, these politicians who fight, they want to fight climate change, their lifestyles are contributing to it. Yeah, I mean, it's down to the hypocrisy of a man in power at the end of the day when it comes to the political animal. Uh, climate change is not the big burning issue as some members of the scientific community and political community want to make it to be. It's an opportunity. It has been an opportunity. The reality is the renewable energy industry has been flailing. Uh, it's been 25 years of almost a trillion dollars in government spending and contributions from all over the world. And yet renewable energy can't produce anywhere near 2%. Lucasio Cortez wants to spend for the what? Was it 3 trillion or something like that? Yeah, but she's not, she not relevant, right? Let me go. <laughs> no. She's not relevant. Uh, she could go out selling oh, on OnlyFans. Are you aware of this? Are you aware that once you now sign on to the Paris Agreement, it is irreversible? Uh, yes. And no, at the same time, we can discuss that at length. Okay. But it's okay. a difficult... It's, 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 yeah. 
it's a difficult one because international yeah. law itself fundamentally does not encroach on the sovereignty of a state. Let's right. say in the case of Biden signing that on in its current form, and if Trump comes back into power in 2024 and he wants to pull out, it's not going to be anywhere as easy as this time yes. around. Let's just yeah, say that's that. that's, yeah, that's it. So, so, we'll, so if he signs on this year, we're looking at at least eight years. Best case scenario, at least eight years. But realistically, 10 years under this uh, climate, climate, climate agreement until about 2026 when they uh, start um, negotiating and they might create a new agreement before 2030 or they might create one that will... Uh, you know what I find so hypocritical and so humorous? This is, this is France. This is the collaborative effort of France and China, this Paris Agreement. And all France contributes is 1 billion euros. But this is their idea. Well, I mean, the two guys that have been pushing it in the West is France and Canada. And when you look at France and Canada and the 2030 commitment, even though the 2030 commitments are not spectacular, it is the same thing as China being peaking at 2030 in the same way. They're still behind. France right. and Canada are still behind on the projections. In fact, the only countries major countries that are doing anywhere near well are the United Kingdom, the Nani State, and India is close to where they need to be. But again, India, again, India made a commitment of something they were already going to do. So India is actually below their actual projected trend. This goes back to my point of if everybody just if they just do what they have to do, there's no need for a Paris Agreement. This is just literally saying, hey, we spent billions of dollars to do what we were already going to do. I don't know. This is, but let me move on. Because we get, we, we, no, mm-hmm. yeah, this is the point of how useless government really is. Because if all of this was already going to happen, why make it a big celebration and a big spectacle? Exactly. But moving on, and uh, oh boy, I, I, I clump these executive orders together. Oh boy. All right. So this is the immigration portion of oh. tonight's conversation. And I'll take them part by part. The first one, protections for GMAs, according, oh, to, sorry, according sorry. to the DACA program. Ah. No, sorry, I, th- I thought the first one was going to be released to try all the cages because I've, I've heard they've been there since 2016. Oh, okay. But last <laughs> time I checked, the cages were built in 2008 to 2014, right? I mean, it wasn't those the cages where Biden used to go and smell children. Oh, never mind. So, uh, executive, executive order for affording extra protections for dreamers who are part of the DACA program. Because the DACA program was the big, the last big legislative, let's say, accomplishment of the Obama administration, it was re- it was subjugated as much as possible by congressional Republicans and pres- President Trump, and now it looks like uh, Biden is very much uh, intent on completing what he started as vice president along with President Obama between 2008 and 2016. So. Well, there was a time when there was something called the American Dream, where you got off of your ass and you work hard for something and you build something. Now there's the dreamers who just jump over a fence and come into America. Yeah, that's a dream. Yeah, and you, you see the problem with the DACA program, one of the major problems 
with uh, immigration law, state-by-state state immigration law, and the DACA program is that it, it, the program targets the children who are brought at a very young age and are born in the United States. Of course, if you're born in the United States, you're a naturalized citizen. But the children who are born very young as immigrants. The problem with the program is, according to the individual laws of each state, most states, uh, general immigration statutes, is that if you're brought as a young child, you can't be separated from your parents. So if your parents are also illegal immigrants, they have to stay with you. They can't get rid of any of you. Exactly. And the problem with the DACA program is that it leads to not just the children getting protections, but it leads to the parents getting enough time to go through the system to win citizenship. So it's, it's not a normalization program of dreamers as much as it's made out to be. It's really well and truly the harvest thing of immigration labor. And morally, I mean, political, there's the obvious political consequences of the fact that, okay, it's predominantly individuals from third world nations, and uh, if they're granted amnesty by a democratic program, by a democratic president, you would like to think that they're going to vote Democrats for the rest of their life. But outside of the obvious, which is still an extremely important thing. Pardon? No, I said shout out Minnesota. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Elon. Um, but um, <laughs> other than that, morally, up front, I mean, it's wrong. It's a disjustice to the American people to be able to have a program like that, to basically grant amnesty to entire families because of one child. There are entire families under the original DACA program, families of age 9 and 10, that got the opportunity to stay because of the one eight-year-old that was brought at a young age. Mm -hmm. So, reinvent, then, look, reviving the DACA program is obviously problematic. But you know, mm -hmm. Jim, we have the problem with the illegal Venezuelans here, and we can attest the fact they don't come in twos and threes, they come in nine and tens. Correct. I mean, the, the reality is you have the third caravan forming in, in as many years on the border and for the first time in these three occurrences you have a president who has either pressure on him or a preference to let large amounts of illegal immigrants in and that is what they are they are illegal immigrants and you know i i really don't care for the semantics anymore any yeah, any, I, any anymore we bought we boy gone they get rid of him he tried to play politically correct to an extent we tried to play politically correct for four years they didn't care for it they wanted it ahead they went and they, they, they did the nastiest things to him and his family. Uh, they, they went after the right wing. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if we, we play semantics or not or be politically correct or not. They'll crucify us because we are saying things that they don't politically agree with. So I don't particularly care anymore. The reality is these are illegal immigrants. And, and as much as history tells us, and we, we'll talk about this when we talk about the Venezuelans and Trinbigo War Room, but as much as history has examples of natural migration patterns from state to state throughout history. History is equally filled with examples of often great society taking in large amounts of individuals who are not culturally similar to the existing cultures of that society and then destroying the society therein, destroying the socioeconomics therein, destroying the labor markets therein. The reality is you are not, you are very much securing the future of the Democratic Party 
by destroying the future of the American people. And it's not a race thing. It's culture. Everybody wants to clean race and make it a race situation. The young man, whether he is a Gregory or a Juan Dando, <laughs> born in the murder capital of the world in Honduras, in Pedro Sansula, will never be as culturally anywhere near the same as the black or white young man of the same age that grew up in, in America, <laughs> in Wisconsin. Well, the Wisconsin's have too much question marks. It's uh, 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 Texas, 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 in Texas, Texas, Texas. That was too hard. It was that was way too difficult to try to find a normal state. That is way too difficult. That is concerning. But the reality is, cultures are different, and we need to start realizing this. It's the same thing in Trinidad and Tobago. And I don't want to go into the Venezuelan situation too much because we don't want to give away that episode. Uh, oh. But the reality is, cultures are different. And if you override your culture with a very different culture in the first place, your culture will eventually die. You know what? Anybody that wants to argue cultures are different, I'll ask them, then what does multiculturalism mean? Doesn't multi mean different, many? So I, I, that's why I won't bother to argue semantics. Because if people want to argue semantics, clearly don't have a dictionary in the house. Correct. And you know, it, it is the stupidest thing. These immigration policies are going to hurt, hurt the American middle class in an extreme way. It's not the first right? time. We, we are talking about two consecutive orders, the Paris Accords and this data program. That the 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 end product, the final line on both of them is killing millions of American jobs. And via outsourcing and via immigrant jobs. labor. You're going to kill jobs, you're going to bring people, and they have no jobs for them. What they're going to do, they're going to have to go on welfare. Who's going to pay for it? The American taxpayers. There we go. So, you know, it, it's a difficult one. But moving on, the, the other part of his many immigration executive orders is the removal of the Muslim ban. Oh. You start, you know. You start. I will finish. You start. I want to correct something there. You see, I hate this term, the Muslim ban. Because last time I checked, Venezuela is a Christian country. All right? And Venezuela is one of the countries that are banned. The, the, the diplomats of Venezuela. So... <laughs> Joe Biden just removed travel restrictions on some of the most corrupt politicians in the world. And all CNN could focus on is the Muslim part of it. Now, India is not on the list. Pakistan is not on the list. Turkey is not on the list. The countries that are on the list... Are they should be. Are... <laughs> I'll talk about next time. The countries that are on the list are the countries that are known for terrorist activities. That's not a Muslim ban, okay? It's a national security order. That's what it is. You know, it, it, it's so funny that, you know, we the, the media, and particularly the Democratic Party, has managed to make terrorism somehow a smaller no, concern. No, Thomas Sowell, Thomas Sowell once said this, the way Obama talks about terrorist activities in the abstract, it makes you wonder if Presbyterians are going around blowing up the place. No, I, I, you know, I, D, 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 
<laughs> the the rhetoric that surrounded the uh travel ban has been so archaic and erased days. Uh it's 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 oh, a yeah. of how the collective IQ of the West is no, really um deteriorating, you know. It's a no that, but it's also an indicator of how illiterate the West really is in terms of um our cultural ignorance. Because the fact that we think that it's a Muslim ban, what the left is doing, the left is actually projecting their thought process on the people. Because mm-hmm. Turkey, Turkey isn't like I said, Turkey, India, Pakistan, all these countries where Islam is, you know, very there are a lot of Muslims in the country. These countries aren't on the list. Yeah. But the left seems to think that these are the only countries, once it's in the Middle East, it's an Islamic nation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're I mean, the ones showing us how limited they are in their knowledge and how they're the ones stereotyping. I think, once again, um, the allowing of uh, what do you call it? Citizens, I guess, of those countries. Those countries really are like, like hold on. I mean, I, Tan- I Sudan and Tanzania. I need to bring this up because it, it just hit me. Nigeria is on that list. Sudan, Eritrea, Three months ago, Tanzania. Three months ago, months mm-hmm. ago the world was in shock and the world couldn't believe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hashtag NSAS. Was Donald Trump wrong to put Nigeria on the list? <laughs> Sudan, the country that leads the region in child rape and um uh, women sexual assault. Uh, well, I don't know. They, 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 go Sudan to sniff children. I don't know. Well, I, well, he probably he probably likes SARS. I don't know. I don't know. He just probably go to Kyrgyzstan with his son to look at the the finest eight year olds available. I don't know. Probably, I don't they, know. They, we don't know. So maybe <laughs> this, 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 I try to understand how the those on the left selectively their moral outrage because it was a big problem with NSARS and how could these police just kill these innocent people you know Basio Pandey said it the best I know Basio Pandey didn't create this quote but we're Trinidadians so we are we we giving it to Pandey politics has its morality of its own right the reality is for the Democrats yes Basio Machiavelli Pandey yeah we will call him that Uh, Nicolo Pandey um and the politics of the left, and particularly the Democratic Party, has always been politics over actual fundamental morals. The morality is not what is right, but what is politically convenient. It is convenient humanitarianism that we spoke about a lot of times over the last few weeks in Trinidad and Tobago. It is what is taken, convenient humanitarianism is, is in the United States, in the Democratic Party, is institutionalized, is theorized. It is an actual way of movement, of decision-making, of living. And that is what they live and they breathe. So that one day something's bad. But if it's now good for them, it becomes good. It goes back to the old um, adage about cigarette companies once used to pay the government money uh, for the government to restrict uh, studies, saying that smoking causes cancer. They did that for decades. You know, we didn't know 
that cigarettes had rat poison in them uh, until, I don't know, probably the 60s, 70s, or 80s. I know I call three different decades there, but oh gosh, I'm making an analogy all along. But the, 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 it's the same concept of whatever the money flows and whatever is politically convenient is right or wrong on the day, depending on how things swing. And that is what has been for the Democratic Party. They've been so inconsistent. Mm-hmm. No, I just I'm back to the travel ban, and this is the next thing. Saudi Arabia is serious on the list. Now, Saudi Arabia is not taking Syrian refugees. I don't know if you saw recently, um, Somalia just banished Kenyan officials in Somalia. I don't know if you saw that. Okay. Yeah, well, it's just third world countries doing third world countries staying right. with each other. That's all they do. Somehow, those on the left believe that America owes these countries what their own neighbors not given them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm I excited for the burgeoning Sudanese population that will oh, land in Wisconsin. Oh, uh, feminist. I wonder why rape is on the rise. Must be white supremacy. Yeah, white supremacy <laughs> is the answer to that question. What's the, um, what's the, what's the, um, what's the Caucasian population of Hmm. I should I had to look at Kyrgyzstan and you know, look at like, their rape numbers. Um, you know, Biden yeah. might be pleased. Um, but uh, stupid, our next stupid policy. I'll right, move on. Um, the halting of funding of the border wall. Oh yes. Uh let's see. How much billions were spent so far on this wall? Plenty, so, plenty billions. An, another, another start and stop project. The American people just have money to give the government to take and start projects and stop them all in the name of humanitarianism. Because this is what I find very interesting. Now, from what I read, he ended the uh, national emergency status of the war, right? It's no longer a national emergency. So to protect the American people is not a national emergency. But to protect you and all your friends in Congress, that war went up in one week. You you saw that uh they 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 um they Is made the capital police move and like they were sleeping in, in the ground, on the ground something like that yeah all over the place they were sleeping in garages and stuff and then yeah. there was like an outcry from Republicans and then it was like all right come come back and sleep on the floor of the Capitol. come come back come back come back I mean we have too many of you anyway you know we had the sense of all this Syria all they want to go Syria who want to go Syria yeah, Fuck yeah. Well, forty forty already is Forty already reached down. Yeah, they they don't reach forty. They're gonna pump another hundred in Kurdistan before the end of the month. Yeah. That's that's why again, that's yeah. um, that's the information being fed. I um, I know more than Dennis Moses. So, so I mean, not even a not even a weekend, and it's like we're back to just we're, America's back to America. Yeah, I, I think one of the I think you know what would one of be what. The, the conservatives, the establishment conservatives who look to antagonize Trump, I think one of the biggest criticisms they're going to have within the next few years that they'll take advantage of is the fact that Trump spent $3 trillion to rebuild the greatest military in mankind history for mm-hmm. Biden to take it and go to war with. Yep, but, but Jim, this is the thing, eh? You know, we, we really drink the cool, you know? I know, I'll tell you why, we drink the cool. Because Donald, the illusion of Donald Trump made us forget about the reality of the United States. 
no war starting no wars in four years as unprecedented that 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 doesn't happen so the illusion of trump's america which was which was a reality nonetheless but the illusion of trump's america distracted us from the reality of of what the united states is and uh, we we will do an episode later on that but it's very it's a very sobering to, thought to think that the american people voted out um supposedly voted out uh, their most peaceful president since Grover Cleveland, who started no new um, oh battles. And they I replaced him they replaced him with the idiot that wanted to invade the Falkland Islands. With the idiot with the idiot that justified killing Gaddafi. Yeah. With the idiot that took the fake reports of Syrian gas bombs in 2018 <laughs> and went as vice president of the United States on national television and says, the only way to solve that is to invade Syria. Yeah, this... Jim, I saw the most ridiculous comment on Facebook, eh? and it just goes to show you how people are lefting. Donald Trump hasn't started no wars. He, has, he did not start any wars externally, but he started an internal war. That's where these people are going to That's where these people are Everything is poetry for them. Now, everything is poetry, conjecture, and race, right? Because the big thing is that he was this big race. But we'll get into this. We'll get into this in the next episode. We have one more executive order. Let me let me go. Like one right, more for now. Um, again, immigration. Probably reach forty by now, eh? Like as we do. Yeah, he probably, he's probably writing them. Jill is probably signing them for him by now. Um. Uh, the last one we have here on the docket for now, because we'll, I mean, we're going to do this for four years, is uh, the reviewing, without specifications, because I don't know what reviewing means, of ICE. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, I don't know where to start with that. Because you, you take it with the full package of the fact that the border wall stopped, Mozamban, Dhaka has come back. And then on top of that, you're going to crack down on your main immigration force. Well, because Kamala reality Harris, is, I mean, it has to be some kind of crackdown. No, well, Kamala Harris already has a history with ICE. Um, it not, she's not on the side of ICE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's really painting an immigration picture. Of... No, this, this is what I think. The Democrats are never going to openly embrace illegal immigration. You know, I don't think any president has openly said illegals come in. But they're going to do what they do best. It's, it's the same thing like what we do in Trinidad. On paper, it's wrong. But in reality, we just turn a blind eye to it and allow it to happen anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't expect what some of the right-wing commentators are saying is that the 12 million people coming in caravan from Honduras and Mexico to be all given amnesty. I don't expect that. I, no, I, no, in no. fact, in fact, I expect nobody from that caravan to be given amnesty. I am expecting to be turned around and get sent right back. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but what I expect is a million people from that caravan, or at least a few hundred thousand yeah. people from that caravan, yeah. try to get in. And when there's no border wall, no ice, the DACA program, they will then be met with normalization from the federal government. Exactly that, that, and that's what America. That's what they've been doing all the time. They, they, they will deport. They will turn away. But those who slip in, 
they will get a part of citizenship. I think we all know somebody who went up illegally and become a citizen after 10 years. Glenda, I, don't know. I, think I see Americans use that name plenty. And she's <laughs> one. Yeah. America okay. have America is worse than a third country when it comes to immigration because you know right in Trinidad if we want to go charge we, we need a visa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> charge turning away people in America, no? That's what I'm telling you. America is worse than a third world country when it comes to illegal immigration. On paper, uh, on the books, they have all the laws. But you know, Stevie Wonder working border patrol. Yeah, yeah, basically, you know. I mean, so Nairobi in his last days driving the car up and down <laughs> the New Mexico border, <laughs> trying to find, wondering, hmm, the the wall may be working. You know, I'm not seeing any um um illegals crossing. You're not seeing anything, Sundar. You wasn't seeing anything. You were you was you you were standing up in the wrong direction during Chutney so that morning. I don't know weird reference, weird reference. It came into my head, but um, you know, Biden's immigration policy very much looks like more of the same. The yeah. the there will be the leakage and there will be the normalization of the leakage to the extent that Texas will now be a democratic state by twenty twenty four at the rate they're going. Um, this is a group of executive orders. I don't think have we said anything positive. I don't think we've said anything positive. Maybe we're right wing zealot haters. Um, yes, but what was the, um, word? the right wing? Remember somebody told what was the, what somebody said about me? Right wing. We, we have not changed our bigoted views in a hundred years or something. Like that. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Another book. Uh, yeah, because 102. Um, <laughs> things don't look good. Because things very much look like 2008 all over again. We looming financial crisis due to housing bonds while we are seeing the increase of horrible democratic policies when it comes to immigration. We have to keep remembering because I am all forgetting COVID mash up the economy. Sorry, not All COVID. Right. No, let me not, not repeat what the politicians say. Politicians mash up the economy, not COVID. Politicians destroy the economy. Lockdowns destroy the economy. Social yeah. programs destroy the economy. Not, not the COVID. The COVID wasn't that deadly. The COVID is not the what Terence Diaz in this The COVID killed 1%. 2%. Less than 1%. Huh? Not, well, well, of, yeah. the total, yeah, of the total population, the COVID killed 1%. The unemployment rate has never been less than 1%. Well, it'll be now. No, it won't. It won't be now. Sorry, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, it is two six a.m. Um, but these exact these these policies just look so startling, like more of the same. Um, we're gonna continue to talk about these things. We're gonna be on the, you know, front foot for most of this. Uh, yeah. a Biden Kamala Harris presidency, more so a Democratic White House, means that we are going back to the era of BuzzFeed not playing politics and talking about pumpkin spice lattes and <laughs> focaccia bread. And no, we are going will, back. We will talk about politics. Did you see what Kamala Harris over last weekend? All right. Yes, 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 yes. That is very true. And we're going back to the days of Vox just ah. going into Chernobyl and shooting days <laughs> with four eyes uh, <laughs> and publishing that as an hour-long uh, documentary piece. We're going back to the days of Vice coming down in Trinidad 
and having the most retarded interview with Abu Bakr. I hope Abu Bakr is ready, you know, because there'll be about eight media houses who will have nothing to do, will most likely come here. You know, yeah. they'll, they'll talk about Alexander again. You know, our local celebrities are going to be back in the spotlight now that there's no big boogeyman to worry about, but only the ghost of him to blame. <laughs> so, it's going to be a long four years. Um, Maybe eight. Best comment. Well, uh, well, <laughs> any closing thoughts? Because really, my own, my one, I have two closing thoughts. This is the savior of the world, so I wish him all the best. And boy, the expectations of Kamala Harris is so low. Eh? Because I remember when fashion statements were made by first ladies, not the vice president. <laughs> Buckle up, we're in for a hell of a ride, circus and song. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Protect the West, season one, episode two. I am Jake Constantine, and with me uh the one and only John Claude Escalante. Goodbye and good day, good afternoon. When there's nothing left but the fire in my chest and the air that fills my lungs. I'll hold my tears and trade my ears for a glimpse at kingdom come. On the other side of misery, there's a world we long to see. The strife we share will take us there to relief and sovereignty. Oh my God, we'll have our home again by We're foreigners now, our names are spat and cursed The headlines smack of another attack Not the last and not the worst Oh, my fathers, they look down on me I wonder what they feel To see their noble sons driven down beneath a coward's heel. Oh my God, we'll have our home again. My God, we'll have our home. My blood or sweat will get there yet. My God, we'll have our home. The road is dark, the way is lost. My eyes, they strain to see. I struggle forth to find a friend to light the way for me. Oh, brothers, can you hear my voice or am I all alone? If there's no fire to guide my way, then I will start my own. Oh, my God.